Welcome to Get Up in the Cool, old-time music with Cameron DeWitt and friends. This week's friend is Brooks Mastin, the banjo builder. We recorded our conversation and jam during the Portland Old Time Gathering a few weeks ago. If you're unfamiliar with Brooks' work, his banjos are beautiful to the ear and eye and touch. Probably the other senses, too. I've actually been a fan for a long time, but hearing his story deepened my appreciation for what Brooks does. He really puts an incredible amount of care and artistry into these instruments in a way that makes me want to be a better banjo player and owner. I often forget that there's this whole other discipline that makes my discipline possible and enjoyable. After our session, Brooks took me to his workshop and showed me around. It was like going to the North Pole. It was really special to see the place where he spends so much time enabling happiness and community and art. And I gotta say, even though I was pretty ignorant about most of the things he showed me, I recognized his cadence and enthusiasm because the way Brooks talks about recreating old banjo hardware sounds just like an old-time fiddle nerd talking about decoding some obscure bow pattern or tuning. Uh, The purity of the passion is exactly the same. Between the shop tour and hearing his story, which is beautiful and hilarious, I feel like my understanding of what old-time music is has expanded, and that's a great feeling. Stick around afterwards if you want to know how to get your hands on a Brooks banjo. Or support Get Up in the Cool. But first, here's my conversation and jam with Brooks Mastin. Enjoy! Thank you. 
Brooks Mastin, welcome to Get Up in the Cool. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks for letting for me in your me. house and making me tacos. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you are a banjo builder. I get over and over requests to get more banjo builders because it's this specific uh, super nerdy portion of my audience that, you know... <laughs> Those are the episodes that get shared on uh, Banjo Hangout. Oh, they got a new Banjo inter- Builder interview. That's People get really excited about it, and I get really excited about them, too. Uh, so, yeah. Um, I want to hear the whole story, how you got into music in general, and okay. then old-time music, and then how that turned into Banjo Building. I'm assuming it happened in that order. I don't even know. It did, actually. Great. It happened exactly in that order. Great. Um, I always, my whole life, have been really, really into music. So even as a kid, uh, we moved around every year. Yeah. So I lived in a different neighborhood from age of three to the age of 11. So pretty much music is what I had. You know, I'd make new friends each yeah. year in a new school, but music was the constant. Yeah. I mean, um, I was kind of a kid that was always in trouble a lot too. Mm. So actually, Why? I'm just creative. Yeah. You know, I okay. think that's all it was, was they needed me in more art classes instead of having me just sit there and try to pump whatever down my head you know yeah. i've never been one to sit around so i would actually have i actually had like a secret music collection that my parents didn't even know about it even yeah. from little i had like my secret little monkeys records you know and have little dance parties at my house wait why was it a secret i was always in trouble i was afraid they'd take it away from me yeah you know when you take your bike away when you can take <laughs> yeah. my records away because you don't even know i have them <laughs> oh man that's such a that's such a like a like a loaded thing to have like a to to have to like keep your stuff secret just because like I, this is the thing I love and this will the thing be the thing that gets leveraged against me right <laughs> right like a, you know and it probably was unnecessary but it was just the way I thought it was like yeah reactive yeah. thinking it's like, like uh, you know some kids hoard like you know music or steal stuff you know but you had like right I had my records your monkeys player. yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome so. Um, but when I was 11, we moved to, um, my mom passed away when I was 11, and we moved to San Pedro, California, which is the harbor of Los Angeles. And that town had a giant music scene mm. already when I got there. Um, so growing up there, I got to see bands like all the time, and that was one of the kind of between me and my friends the goals were you know to be in bands to get to tour in a band yeah play music um but as usual as a kid i just didn't i didn't think my hands were big enough i have huge hands yeah i'm like i can't play guitar my hands aren't big enough Uh, blah 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 (laughs) um and i surfed a lot too so i was mostly a fan yeah you know um i was in the print shop so i'd print flyers cool we would do these things where we'd have uh the one day tour and you'd hand out flyers and have five different addresses on it and like six diff- different bands. And you'd go to the first address and you'd go through the bands until the police showed up and they'd, <laughs> you guys shut it down. And then we'd take it to another address and start it up again. And then like, by the fourth house, the cops would be like, line up our equipment. Yeah. You guys like this stuff? You know, if you want to keep it, take it home right now and don't bring it out again today. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was a lot of just mostly being an observer of music and noticing that music was pretty much in my head all the time. Yeah. Like that's what my, you know, the radio station in my head was always going. Yeah. Um, and 
I took a road trip in 1987 up here to Oregon. And the guy, it was basically a camping trip all the way to Canada. And I ended up in Portland, Oregon in a bar. And I hit my head. And uh, I got offered a job through it. Like the bar owner came out. I was at a McMinimins and I had tripped. Like they have this, you walk down these steps into the place and there's like that one last step. And I did a dive into a pool table. Oh no. Smacked my head really hard and he sat me down. And LA was kind of really out of hand at that point. Um, my neighborhood is really violent and there's just crazy stuff happening pretty much every week. So yeah. I told him about it and he's, it turns out he's a philanthropist. Yeah. So he's, you know, you get up here in the next six months and you got a job, buddy. Yeah. So I actually took a year and I made it to Eugene and I had a friend staying in Eugene and I stopped at his place just to say hi and took a little walk around town and thought yeah i don't need another city yeah how much to move in he said a hundred dollars so i started living in eugene and being in oregon it's raining all the time and if you don't do something about it you're gonna be one of the people that pack up and move real quick you know so i realized that you know now's the time to really start learning music um so i also started a little you know uh domino effect of getting people to move up from my old scene yeah so um my good friend rainy kane moved up and we just started playing music together well she set up with drums and i bought a bass and so we had drums and bass and i'm like what do we need we need an artist you know every good band needs artists so uh my girlfriend at the time's a roommate Amazing artist, didn't play music. He's always playing like pinball for hours, like video game guys. So yeah. I went to the video game place. I'm like, Paul, put this down. You're going to be our guitar player now. So we learned to play music. So you thought you needed someone like specifically artistic. It didn't matter if they knew how to play an instrument or not. Exactly. Just like someone with like a vision. Yeah. And who could do cool art for our flyers yeah. and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like every band is that I knew had somebody in it who was really, really good at Because your experience of the, like, of the music as an observer was very holistic. It's not just, like, the notes. No, it it's was, like... It's, like, the performance, the f- it's getting ready for the show, it's in the print shop, it's... Yeah. The flyers were the way of... You know, we didn't have internet. It was all about flyers growing up. Yeah. So, you know, all the way down 13th Street in Eugene, just flyers posted yeah. to every billboard. So, you know... You got lame flyers. You're not going to get many people to your shows. Yeah. So that was that. Um, but after a couple of years, I got really tired of lugging around. You know, guitar player had a twin reverb, and I had like two 15-inch bass speakers, and yeah. the drum set, and we had a station wagon. Drummer's a mom, so she's got to leave early. Yeah. Guitar player's a student. He's got you know. So I'm just like this. I'm getting sick of this. And. Um, uh, a guitar player's roommate came home with a banjo one day. It was a tenor, and I couldn't put it down. Yeah. And so I went to the Buy and Sell one day. There's a really great store in Eugene back in the day called the Buy and Sell. I think it's still around, but the original one was owned by this guy, Jim, and he was great. Like, if you were hurting for money, you could bring in a screwdriver, and he would buy it off of you. you know, he's awesome. just in his supporting music. Yeah. And she had scored the banjo for 50 bucks. So I go in the buy and sell. I'm like, I'm going to get a banjo, banjo, you know, and I look, and there isn't one. 
Yeah. But as I'm leaving, I'm like, check out this Marshall stack against the door, you know, and I'm looking out, looking at the stack, and I look behind it, and there's actually an old silver tone open back, like one of those harmony yeah. type deals. Somebody stashed back there. It's hidden. Yeah. And I'm like, fifty bucks, fifty dollar price tag on it. So I snagged it. And and that was it, pretty much. That's I went to the library, I think, the next day or the same day and well, this banjo doesn't have a back on it. You know, I yeah. noticed on these records, some of the banjos have a back and some don't. Yeah. So I started, you know, I bought a Hobart Smith record or checked it out at Hobart Smith. Um, back home on the Blue Ridge, you know, Tommy, Fred, and uh, Charlie Jenkins, is that who it is? Just completely crazy music. Yeah. And I was, I was sold. I, I just started playing like crazy. I took some lessons off a lady and she was kind of like, no one learns two tunes in one day. Yeah. You know, you be sure you've never done this before. Yeah. And then on top of that, I was the only banjo player that I knew. So all of a sudden, like all these bands are like, hey, come ban play banjo with us. You know, I didn't know how to play banjo at all, but I could yeah. sit there and like, nah, 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 you know, whatever. People would love it. Yeah. I get the banjo, and then like two months later, I meet a woman from Alabama. Yeah. And we decide, I, and then I got given this car, an old 65 Falcon station wagon. Um, I worked at a restaurant, and she couldn't always afford My boss couldn't always afford to pay me, so huh. she gave me her car. <laughs> I didn't even want it. You know, I was like, I want a car. You know, yeah. I had, I had like, <coughs> I couldn't get a driver's license in Oregon for seven years. I had left some things untied in L.A., so I had to lay on the low. Um, so finally, the seven years goes up. I can fix up the car. Yeah. And I went full in with the car too. Fixed it completely up. We're gonna drive back to Alabama and visit your family, and then we're gonna drive through the Blue Ridge Mountains, and I'm gonna meet all these old fiddlers, and they're gonna teach me tunes. You know, yeah. that was the that was the plan. Yeah, it's a great plan. Totally, it was a great plan. <laughs> and and as a bonus, halfway there, um, her mom was best friends with an artist who lived up in in Taos, New Mexico. So we stopped off there. And this was kind of crucial to everything. We stopped at, um, her name was Lanford Monroe, and she lived with Chipper Thompson. She was a pretty well-known realist artist throughout the Southwest and the Midwest. And Chipper was a, a collector of everything. You know, he had a huge library. He's a history buff. He had, like, Union soldier outfits, Confederate soldier outfits, Native American buckskins. You know, his house was like a museum. Their adobe house was like 465 years old. Huh. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my hair is down on men just talking about it. Yeah. And he introduced me to a bunch of musicians there. Is this party? And basically, my <coughs> mode then was I was a cook, like I cook you tacos. You know, yeah. I, I that trip, I brought a whole mess kit with me. So I yeah. sat up in the corner of this party. I didn't really know anybody. I just started making tortillas. Yeah. And, you know, so you started getting to know people. And this guy, Bruce, was like, you play banjo? I got an old Farland you need to check out. You know, breaks out his old Farland. And I'm just like, oh, my God, this is great. And then the musicians that showed up, they're like, hey, Brooks, come play with us Friday night. I played with them for like 20 minutes. And they're like, you're in. Come play with us Friday night. Yeah. So I'm like, now I got a show. What were they playing? They played this like freaky, we called it Sonic Folk. Okay. It was like a nine-piece band, um, all plugged in electric. Uh -huh. I basically ran my banjo through uh, a delay, uh -huh. and I had a, 
I had a condenser mic on the inside of it so I could talk into it. Oh, crazy. At the same time. So my job would listen to people in the audience because we had quiet times in the songs and then times I would just go over the top and noisy, yeah. crazy. And quiet times I would just eavesdrop on people in the crowd. And then when I got crazy music again, I would just repeat what they were saying. And then my <laughs> mic, I needed to watch people just completely lose it because uh, the devil's talking in my ear. Oh my God. So I was in with them. Um, but the other big thing was Chipper, you know, I had pretty limited musical uh, resources. You know, I had about five all-time records. And I got there and he's like, you need to meet Steve, too. Steve makes the most amazing instruments you've ever seen in your life. You know, um, and at that time he was considered the best mandolin and bazooki maker in the world. Huh. You know, he was making a guitar for Richard Thompson when I was there and he made a mandolin for the guy in the Pogues. But he had a whole box of old-time records. He had Ed Haley and old-time music, Claire and Ashley's house, um, Wade Ward, just like the Essentials, the yeah. Galax Top 20. Yeah. He had them all. Um, so I recorded all this stuff, and then you know we continued on our way to... I didn't get to meet Steve on the way out there. Um, but we we're coming back because they asked us to house it for him on the way back, take care of the horses and stuff. So we went to Alabama, hanging out in Alabama, waiting in line for a burrito at Bandito Burrito. And my partner's mom, she's like, hey, Edwin, this guy standing in line, which a lot of people probably know, is Edwin Wilson from Huntsville, Alabama. He's always at Clifftop. Hmm. And that year he wasn't going. And she's like, Edwin, this is Brooks. He plays the same kind of music you do. He's in old time music. He plays banjo. And it's like, you like old time music? You need to jump in your car right now and drive north 10, 10 hours. Go. Yeah. Cliff Top, you know, Festival of American Phil Tunes. I'm like, all right. I go up there and I, I thought I was good. You know, I learned from Tab. Yeah. I'd never really heard anybody play except yeah. for the few recordings. So I get to Cliff Top and I'm just completely blown away. I had a similar experience. <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm like, wait a minute. Like, oh, shit. Yeah. Wait, wait. <laughs> that was hot stuff. The yeah. first night I like, tried to play with people and I walked around. The funny thing is, is we drove 10 hours and we park and we get out of the car and we literally walk 20 feet and we run into this guy, Leroy, from Eugene, huh. who my partner knew. And he's like, hey. What are you doing here? Aren't you from Eugene? Blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, I'm here. I'm a, I'm a beginner. I've been playing for four years. And I'm like, what are you talking about four years? you got to be good by now. You know? Yeah. That was it. We didn't see him again. Yeah. The whole festival. But it was the probably most rainy cliff top ever. The contest was in the lodge. Um, it was just dumping, 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 and all our stuff got wet the first day. So, like, we're in the station wagon, our clothes are wet, and it, you can't really sit around. You know, if you want to watch people play, you really got to crowd in there. Yeah. And, and I'm just not that kind of person. Yeah. So, I was pretty lost. Uh -huh. um, so, I started hanging out in the lodge and got to see Melvin Wine play. Oh, my God. You know, and people lined up 10 deep to listen to him play. I'm like, look, you got to wait in line if you want. <laughs> when these older guys teach you tunes, you know. Yeah. So I just kind of looked around, and then I went out and I saw Bob Smackula's booth, and 
that that really did it. Just getting to see banjos that I had, didn't even know existed. Yeah. You know, Chipper had the uh, Sears and Robot catalog. And he's like, check out these ones, you know, banjo, $2.50. And I'm like, but look at that thing. Look at all those shoes on it. You know, I just, I had no idea. Yeah. And then to actually get to see him in person, I was just, I was, I was blown away. Yeah. And the rest of the festival was me like, hey, can I see your banjo? You know, just kind of like imposing on people. Yeah. And I just, it was, it was great, but it was also a nightmare at the same time. And it kicked me into gear. Would you was, say, would you say that's like when like the banjo turned into like, oh, the making of a banjo is like an art and like, it's not just a, it's, it's not uh, like just the kind of instrument you would find in a, you know, for $50 and at buy and sell. It's like, people are like, it was the sound. Yeah. It was the sound. It was, I had a Vega with like a 26 and three quarter scale length and a plastic head on yeah. it. And these banjos sounded like chickens. And they yeah. sounded warm and bubbly, yeah. like they're underwater. And it was like the fist string sound. Yeah. Like, that was what I, in records, that's how I knew that I didn't have a good banjo because I could just hear the ring of that fist string. Yeah. And here mine was like, twang, twang, twang. I'm like, no, it's not right. Actually, the second day at Clifftop, I went, after trying to find someone to play with, like the second time, I was just like, I'm not polluting my polluting this place with this banjo. You know? So I actually <laughs> went to my car and I took it apart. Took it completely apart huh. put it back in the case. I'm like, you're done until I put it for my fingerboard on you, pull yeah. out all the frets, and put on a skinhead, and then I'll start playing banjo again. Huh. Um, so then went back, you know, did the rest of our trip, really got to my feel for the South. I'd already been to the South a couple times, um, but this time was the real deal, you know, staying with families and stuff. Yeah. And we went back to New Mexico, and I got to meet Steve Smith. Um, on the internet, he's known as Stephen Owsley Smith. He's kind of hiding away in Hawaii now. Um, mm. He's not building much anymore. He's actually living in a cave on the Big Island. Wow. And I know it's a. He lived in a school bus in New Mexico when I met him, and okay. it was like this totally decked out school bus in the middle of nowhere, like you're on the moon. Um. So I think he's doing okay. But anyways. I would talk banjo with him. He was really into banjos. And I'd basically go there and I had my Vega that I was complaining about. And then the next year I went back, I had my Stewart. And I'd always be like, you know, I need this, I need that. Freaking Dave put a crack in my banjo right here, yeah. taking it up to two peaks. And can you do a setup on it? And he did the setup on it and I hated it. I was like, are you serious? <laughs> you know, and he's like, one. He's like, you're insulting me right now. And I'm yeah. like, but this isn't the, no, this is too low. This is like guitar yeah. set up. And he's like, you know what, Brooks? You're not going to have to worry about buying banjos because you're going to be a banjo maker. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, right, dude. And he gave me, actually gave me a cigar box banjo kit to put together. Huh. He's like, go home, put this together. And next time you come to New Mexico, bring it to me. And from the other band, the Lords of Howling, those other people I talked about, I actually ended up in their band and would tour with them each year. So I'd either go meet them in New Mexico and we'd do the West Coast, or they'd pick me up in San Francisco. And so we started going there every year and actually trying to move to New Mexico every year. 
trying to move to New Mexico. Yeah, but we had just bought a house in Eugene. It was kind of, that's why I rent. Every yeah. time I buy a house, all of a sudden I want to be somewhere else. Yeah. So I ended up actually, you know, I went back to Eugene. I met Leroy, the guy who we met for yeah. 10 minutes. And he was a great source for old-time music. He had all the old-time heralds. Hmm. He had the best. How long has that publication been out now? I met him. I met Douglas in 96, and he had a pretty hefty stack huh. of them already. Is it quarterly? Yeah, I think so. Okay. They changed it up a couple times. Okay. I haven't been on the loop in a while. But he started turning me on to festival tapes. Yeah. He was the kind of guy, he was kind of like me, like shy at festivals. Yeah. He'd go and stick his tune sucker under David Bass's seat. Yeah. yeah. Or like under <laughs> Riley Boggess' seat. Yeah. You know, and they wouldn't know it was there. So like I got this real intimate uh -huh. knowledge of a lot of people. Uh, just a public service announcement. Please go and buy David Bass and Riley Boggess' music. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that did it. The Red Hots tape that he gave me, that... Yeah. That was it for me. I'm yeah. like, oh my god, this is a freight train. I want yeah. it to sound like this. Um, tapes with Mark Olitsky, yeah, you know, and then a couple years the later, all of a sudden, um, it was David Bass and Frank Lee and Carrie. It was before the freight hoppers, yeah. And I had a, I forget who they were playing with. Anyways, smoke and tape, yeah. But it was kind of discouraging, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, I'm never going to be there, you know, yeah. so I, I bought Frank's instructional video, and he had that banjo that is made, so the guy, his friend in France made it for him, and it was like a silver spun rim with a bacon tone ring over yeah. the top of it, and a boat heel, and <coughs> that kind of, I was like, that was, that's one of those banjos, you know, that's what I saw at Smackula's booth. Yeah. Um, Okay, and I'm, I'm, I'm going over many years here, and I'm yeah. just kind of jumping around to get to the meat and potatoes, which is actually in 1999, we pulled it together and we actually did move to New Mexico. Yeah. And that was after playing with Douglas for years, or Leroy, he goes by Leroy now, and then I met a actual Southern fiddler, a real bonafide Southern alcoholic fiddler who we just <laughs> would get in the worst fights together, but we, you know, it was like... When you're best friends like that, you just get to know each other so well. Yeah. And he'd get to drinking. But in between, like, the first beer and the third beer, he would be, like, one of the best fiddlers I've ever heard. Yeah. You know, I feel like Tony Wright should have gotten more recognition, but he had some social hang-ups. Yeah. And he'd be nasty. Yeah. We named our CD Sweet Like a Badger. Because <laughs> I'm like, you're like a badger, dude. You're yeah. just, he's like, you're a flighty California son of a bitch, aren't you, bro? <laughs> Yeah. I actually threw him out of my yard one time over a fence. I'm like, you're out of here. It's like four in the morning. Brooks, let's play some tunes. I'm like, dude, my wife just got back after being gone for three weeks. Let's play some tunes. Like, Shut up. <laughs> Get out of, you know, whatever. Um, so actually I became a pretty good banjo player playing with Tony. Yeah. And so when I moved to New Mexico, I was pretty devastated because the band I was in, I really loved, but it, it was definitely not an all-time yeah. band. So that wasn't being met anymore. That need wasn't being met. Yeah. But there was Steve. Yeah. So I'm like, Steve, I'm here. Um, I want to make a mountain banjo. And he's like, no, you're not going to make a mountain banjo. You're going to make a real banjo. Yeah. I was like, but I've never worked with wood, which isn't true. Like Growing up, I um, refinished boats. I lived on a boat for a while and... Kind of during the 80s when 
all these guys suddenly had more money than they knew what to do with. Yeah. You know, ripping off old people, savings and loans scam. So I'd, I'd, you know, like, hey, man, your boat looks like crap. And they'd be like, how much? You know, so I'd, <laughs> I'd redo the woodwork on boats. Yeah. So I did have a little experience, and I was a house painter also. So Steve's like, you know, you're going to make a real banjo. And I remember he was sitting at a bar with this guy, Tony, and... I was like, I, I don't know how to work with wood. You know, why don't we start with the mountain banjo? And Tony pipes in. He said, I met Steve a year and a half ago, and I didn't know anything about wood either, and now i got a year and a half wait list. Yeah. And I was like, okay, let's do this. Let's do it. Yeah. You know, what do I buy? You know, and he's like, go buy some maple. So we decided to do this, a trade where I'd fix up. He went to move to Hawaii. Him and his girlfriend went to move to Hawaii. And... Um, a little side note, he had this school bus set up along this farmland in Taos. And I don't know if you're familiar with how they farm in Taos. They have yeah. these acequias that have been there for hundreds of years. But they flood the field. You know, they open the gates and the acequia is like a little stream. Mm-hmm. And uh, it raises the water up above the height of the field. So one minute there's a field there and then they flood it and oh. it's just water. And Steve really wanted to move to Hawaii. So you go there and he had this little hula altar set up as like little hula girl that danced like when you you know like the little dogs on your dashboard of your car yeah. you know she would yeah. do a hula thing and he'd be laying out there it'd be 30 degrees outside but it's always sunny and he had a windbreak 30 degrees outside and he'd be like tanning oil all over him with the little <laughs> eye protectors <laughs> laying and beachfront property is like they would flood the Asaki and he's like oh it's like the ocean you could hear the little waves yeah. lapping you know and just like you're a madman okay so he obviously wanted to go to hawaii he yeah. wanted to go yeah. to hawaii so he's like you come fix up janine's house and i'll teach you how to make banjos so we started doing that and I went and glued up my neck. I glued up my fingerboard, and it was time to carve the neck. Where I was going to go over one day, and he show me how to carve. And I get there. I've said this on Craig's too, but there's another guy there. Yeah. And Steve, when he told me that, he's like, you know, when he told me I should be a builder, he's like, I've been telling people no for 30 years. Yeah. He's like, you're the first person I feel like who has an attention span. He's like, you probably haven't watched TV much in your life. And I was like, gave it up in '85. <laughs> um. So I get there that day and there's another guy there, you know, and he's yeah. like, I got to go in here and help this dude get his layout done. And I was like, Steve, I thought I was the only one. <laughs> I'll be right out. Here's what you do. You know, he gave me a spoke shave and he's like, you do this. I'll be right out. And I'm like, okay. And I just, I carved the whole neck. I don't wait for him and he comes out and he's, he looks at me and he's like, he looks at the neck and he's like, you already know how to do this. Yeah. He's like, you are self-critiquing yourself already. This neck is carved better than some banjos I've seen where makers have been making them for a few years. Yeah. I think you found your calling. Awesome. And the one thing that we really wanted to do, I wanted to make silver spun rim. Yeah. You know, because so many people say, if you learn how to make silver spun rim, you'll make a million dollars. And Steve, same thing. He's like, you know, there's that John, John Hartford song about if you find that 12-inch silver spun rim in, my, in the attic, he's uh-huh. like, let me know. I want it. So that was... I kind of put my insomnia to work for me on that. Mm. I, just, I couldn't figure out... I had the... Um, my. F- oh, let's, i got to jump back a little bit. Yeah. 
to get started, Steve agreed to teach me how to build banjos. I didn't really have any money, so I went to all of the people I knew who knew him that collected instruments and said, hey, Steve's going to teach me how to make banjos. If you buy materials, I'll make you a banjo across the materials. So I actually had five orders before I had even made a banjo. Huh. And the first guy to order one was Chipper Thompson, and he gave me um, Jim Bowman's book, the America's Instrument. And he's like, I want a um, minstrel banjo. I had seen a few um, Civil War era banjos when I lived in Eugene. And I would, I would drive all over when I lived in Eugene to go. I would go to Portland on a regular basis to see banjos. I would drive down to Palo Alto to go to Griffin Music. I was all about it. So more into learning tunes, I was into learning about what banjos were what. Yeah. And then I got that book laid on me, and I made him kind of a, you know, minstrel-ish. Yeah. I did, I'm, I'm looking at pictures. Right. Um, but little did I know, that's when George Wonderlick was really taken off. I went to Clifftop that year. That was, that was 2000. I hadn't quite finished Chipper's banjo yet, or I had. And I went to Clifftop that year, and Wonderlick had his booth set up. And I watched him sell all of them. And I realized, no, I don't know what I'm doing with these minstrels, yeah. you know, so I'm just going to go start making my own thing. But I kept getting orders for minstrels, so I did that. Um, but the fourth banjo, I finally figured out how to make a silver spun. Yeah. You know, I just kind of in my sleep, I figured out I could probably do it with a hammer. You mean just like as you were like dozing off? You were yeah, just like, like, uh, like I came up with the peg head shapes, all that stuff in the yeah. middle of the night, just... Couldn't sleep. That's all I was thinking about. Yeah. So I did. I made it. I didn't tell Steve about it. I found out where to get the nickel. <laughs> and I did it. And it came out really good. And I showed it to him. And he started weeping. Oh. You know, he was just blown away. He's just like, oh, my God. Um, you're not wasting my time here. Yeah. And he's also, at the same time, he's like, but you already kind of know how to do this. So go on. Little yeah. bird, go. If you get stuck, call me, but we're done. I wasn't expecting this, like, like Kung Fu Master and Apprentice. Oh, like, totally. Story. This is awesome. It's totally. <laughs> I mean, I could go on and on again about yeah. it because he was amazing. He would climb up to the 12,000 foot peaks behind him and harvest, you know, Engelman spruce and bring it back down. And he had a line on Cuban mahogany. And he was kind of like, you know, when I, I've rented parents as I go along. Yes. I, mean, I get along with my dad great now, but back then we there was a big rift in between us. Um, I was playing that damn train hopping music. Right. You know, he just did not like old time, did banjos, whatever. You know, yeah. you had a job, dude. Um, but when Steve told me that, I, I called my... You know, Steve's like... I brought him my third banjo. Yeah. Is what happened. I brought him my third banjo, and I was working for a stair builder at the time. And that week I'd been cutting wedges on a table saw. <laughs> And he had this wooden jig to make wedges, but each time you went over the blade, it took a little bit of the jig away. Mm. So I got a wedge shot right. It would have went right through me, but it hit me right on my belt. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, it probably would have killed me. And it sucked me back, and I felt the wind of the blade, you yeah. know, like almost lost all my fingers. Hit the ground. Um, and then... Like a week later, my friend Anne, who worked there as well, same thing. She was making the wedges, and it actually she went on the back of her head and it knocked her out. Yeah. 
And that was New Mexico. Like you didn't have to have skills to get a job. You just had to show up. Like uh-huh. a lot of locals, they, they own their land. They didn't really need to work. So like people that came, you know, we we're 40 miles from Taos. So yeah. I got a job with the stair builder, super high end woodwork, never really worked with tools before. So Steve was like, you know, he's not a good boss. You need to quit because people are getting hurt and you're going to get hurt. Yeah. And as he's looking at my third banjo and he's like, and he's like, to me, this is better than a Ramsey. Yeah. You need to quit your job and go to Weezer, which is the festival that yeah. everybody comes out west. I'm like, what? And he's like, quit your job. Do it now. He's like, get on it. Like, okay. So I went and called my dad, you know, because he never gave me a penny or anything. Yeah. I'm like, dad, here's the deal. This guy is offering to teach me. He's one of the best in the world. Um, and he did. He, he sent me two grand. So it's pretty, he's, he believed in me, you know, so... Yeah. That was a big step, and I had the five orders, so now I could order, you know, a bunch of parts from Stu Mac, and, yeah. and I was on my way. And I've pretty much had constant orders since then. I have not been without an order since then, and it's been twelve years full time with no other job. Sick. <laughs> yeah, all just from meeting people. It's funny. I didn't go to college. But I've learned all these different trades yeah. this way. Just meeting somebody and paying attention to what they have to say and hanging out and them sharing their craft with me. Yeah. So, yeah. I have a bunch of follow-up questions. We should play okay. another tune. Okay. And then, like, I have a lot to ask. Let's Great. play this Barlow Knife. Sounds good.
That probably cleared all the mice out of my house. <laughs> That's good. What is a Barlow knife? It's a little pocket knife. Just for any just for specific, whittling. Just for whittling? Yeah. Huh. Uh, apropos, then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very good. So, um, uh, I'm not sure where to start. I mean, I want to ask... You mentioned some things about, like, you've been doing this for 12 years? Full-time. Full-time? 18 years altogether. 18 years altogether. Mm-hmm. So, what was the, the banjo-making, like, landscape like at that time? Was it competitive? What were people looking for? Um, what was the learning curve there? To me, it was... Um, the main guys that were out there were, you know... I saw Bart Riders when I went down... <laughs> To Griffin Music in California, and that was the '90s. That was when he really was making incredible banjos. Yeah, you know his. It was they were stunning. Mm. There was like four of them on the wall. I'm like, oh my god, I want one of those. And then um, in Artichoke Music here, we had Bart Ryder banjos, and then they had Ramsey banjos. And I all of a sudden I wanted a Ramsey banjo really bad. Um, and I was also aware of Wildwood banjos because mm. I listened to Art Rosenbaum a lot. So I would <coughs> seek out the Wildwoods and there's a few of those around. But basically what was going on for me is I noticed that everybody was kind of copying the Boston makers. Gotcha. Now I know they're Boston makers, but at the same time, I'm like everybody's copying, redoing, I should say, you know, White Ladies and sure. Coles and yeah. stuff like that. There wasn't anybody doing the New York style stuff. And I would see, that's what I saw at Smacula's booth that really yep. kind of blew me away. Was, what, what's, yeah, what's different about the Boston versus New York style? Uh, New York was more later, I guess, like later 1880s and 1890s. And they had lots of intricate inlays yep. and engravings and fancy tone rings. Yeah. And um, my first banjo was an S.S. Stewart. My first good banjo, yeah, and that had a silver spun rim, and you know I loved the simpler inlays, but yeah. I just basically noticed that there was a niche that wasn't being filled yeah. with your basic like paddle head, and no inlays, yeah, and a simple silver spun rim and a you know a skin head. My friend Leroy, who I was telling you about, he really put kind of the old time. Uh, ethic in my head yeah. towards banjos like he actually went and procured a possum skin for me he's like if you want to sound right <laughs> you need to put possum skin on here here's how you stretch a head here's how you clean yeah. a head um one fun, funny side note is that growing up my dad was a uh, he was a gut salesman <laughs> he sold sutures for a company named ethicon oh my god so we'd move to a different town and he'd get to different local hospitals to carry these sutures that were actually made out of gut huh and we had these little <laughs> deck of cards around ethicon and it was like the real feel of gut you know it had this little kitten drinking out of a milk bowl with milk all over its face you know <laughs> and we had all the scalpels and yeah i could have may have been making banjos back because it was also. made out of cat gut uh i think they're sheep but sheep? that was their like tongue-in-cheek right joke yeah you know i wish i still had that because it's don't isn't like cat don't people say cat gut but they actually mean sheep well, or something using, or do you actually using cats, using cats. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. You know, i i had these stupid jokes i'm going to do about it but cat cat owners cat people have 
I, I dropped it. I'm like, all right, no more cat and banjo jokes. I get it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's where you draw the line. Yeah, I, I, it's all stuck in around. Oh, but awful, anyways, awful Douglas creatures. put that in my head about gut strings and just like the real, you know, kind of down-home yeah. banjos and how they would take flashing off the roof and cut it and lay it over the frets when yeah. the frets were out. He's the kind of guy that turned me on to all that. So that's kind of also, I was... That's where I wanted to go, and the first orders were minstrel. So you know, I got a line on gut strings, and I started making real simple, real simple fretless banjos. You couldn't get fretless banjos either. Why, why real, is that? Like, because the uh, you know old time like revival, like why aren't people like it, it just there wasn't as we weren't all connected. You know, this before the internet, yeah. so you pretty much had your elderly catalog and your Stu Mac catalog, but elderly was. That was the only place I knew where to look for yeah. banjos. You know, I'd get one of those and wait for it each month. Yeah, you know, it's like come, I got my elderly catalog, and like look, you can you, you can order a fretless banjo from Ramsey. You know, yeah, but that was it. Yeah, so I just I hit the ground running because suddenly people could get fretless banjos. So yeah, I got a bunch of orders. Awesome. Yeah, and. Um, Another thing I had going for me was it. My whole company is pretty much formed by my customers. Yeah. So before I moved to New Mexico, I met through Tony. I met this guy named um, people now call him Graham Mead, uh, John Graham Mead, and he lives in the Coast Range here. And he's got a banjo habit. Uh-huh. A, a Bernunzio habit is what I call it because Bernunzio is the other person where that's where you Bernunzio pretty much called the market yeah you know he was he let you know how much stuff was going to cost and all that um, so I had met John and Eugene and I came to the old time gathering here in Portland I think in 2001 and brought a silver spun banjo with me that uh, Taylor Grover had ordered there's so many little stories that just get mixed up. But John would keep me eating in New Mexico. And yeah. he's like, hey, I want one with the silver spun. And I want the peg head to look like Bozo the Clown. Can you do that for me? And I'm like, Bozo the Clown? Yeah, no problem. <laughs> you know, like, wake up in the middle of the night. And that's where I called the clown head headstock. You know, because huh. I kind of just drew out, well, this is what Bozo's head looks like. And then I'm like, wait, I've seen pictures of old banjos where it's just totally round on the top like this. And yeah. So I just like I'll put a point on it and and that'll be it. And he would he kept me eating. Um, I think he ordered like five banjos from me. And what he would do is I didn't know about it, but he would sell them because <laughs> his sons were artists too. So yeah. that's how he got his sons' names out. Was he'd buy paintings from his sons and sell them, and that would get his son's name out in the world. Interesting. Interesting method. So he yeah. bought my banjos and he would send them to Bernenzio. And the first one, it was the nicest banjo I'd made. It had the real, like the, the round ball end shoes I make now. Yeah. Those came off an old e-hammock banjo. Um, of all the banjo makers out there from the 1880s, e-hammock inspired me more than anybody. Yeah. And it, I think Buckby was making his stuff, but he was around during minstrel banjos as well. He made banjos from like the 1850s to the 1880s. So his banjos were a crossover where they still had the, the, the dowel stick would come out the back and there'd be a piece of gut holding on yeah. a, a wood tail piece and they'd have gut strings, but they had all the silver spun rim and really cool 
hardware. I just loved it. And um, Steve had hooked me up with a foundry. You know, he's like, here's a phone number, and you can't give this to anybody because this is the guy that makes my tailpieces, and yeah. he'll do castings for you because you want to do this cool hardware, so let her eat. That's what you need to do. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's pretty much what I had. People were mostly making either white lady-ish, you know, New York banjo, I mean, Boston-style banjos. Yeah. And John was having me make these New York-style banjos, which I didn't really know that yet. Right. Um, you just knew what you were interested in. You, you know, it was know, interesting. Like... Well, they, they were custom orders, so I had to do what he wanted. Right. You know, and then I went back to Clifftop, I think, 2002, and I met Ed Haggard. I don't know if you've heard of him. No. He's from Kentucky. And he would go to Clifftop and set up tables with all these crazy old banjos and fiddles and they weren't for sale they were just show he <laughs> he just had the most incredible banjo collection he yeah. just liked to show it off and you know and talk about it and 2002 I actually went back and i brought banjos to sell and set up a booth and my booth was right next to smacula and um and nobody bought anything and huh. i like borrowed money to get there Oh, man. So I'm like, I get there, I have no money, and I'm like, no way to get home. But Ed Haggard came to my booth, and I had met him like the last couple times I had been there and talked to him, but this time he came by and he's like, I love your banjos. You know, I should have just had you work for me this weekend because it was the first year he had had some surgery, so he'd sold them for the first time ever that year. So he sold like... 20 banjos, you know. Ah, so that's where everyone was. Yeah. 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 And I actually had hand painted banjo signs made that just say banjos. Yeah. And Ed's like, I love your signs. And I was like, you want to buy one? And I'm like, (laughs) just buy anything. So yeah, just buy anything. Anything at home, you know. But he bought the sign and he came back the last day and he's like, all right, come with me. He's like, what is this? And I was like, it's a Dobson copy. And he's like, no, it's a hammock copy. What's this? I was like, Dobson? He's like, no, this would be a Buckby copy. He's like, come on over to my bus. And he sat me down for like two hours. Took you to school. Schooled me. Like, this is what you're making. These are who these people are. If you want to make a living, you should. He was way into Cubbly. He was like, check out these Cubblies. Um, He really instilled metalworking Mm -hmm. even deeper in me. Because, I don't know, it's really hard to find good Cubblies, but. I don't even know what a Cubbly is. He was a banjo maker out of Chicago. Okay. He made banjos for about 10 years. Um, I think most people know him because Dobson took him all the way to Supreme Court, suing him over a banjo patent, a tone ring patent. Oh, my God. You know? Um, But as far as I'm concerned, he made the most amazing banjos out of anybody. And they're really hard to find. So I feel like he's the same kind of shop. Like, I don't know much about him. Somebody told me that he made guitars as well. But incredible stuff, one-person shop, uh, metalwork, woodwork, all there. So that was kind of, yeah. Ed put me on that path. And then I went back and really made some amazing banjos for John. And then it was time. My son was done with uh, preschool and kindergarten. And we didn't really want him to have to go, through, to, go to school in New Mexico. Mm. Um, so we decided to come back to Portland. And I get to Portland, and then I got internet. Yeah. And I, got, I sold my cabin up there, and that's another story. Okay. <laughs> I ended up, the lady 
I got given a piece of land pretty much my second week in New Mexico. Yeah. The lady's like, if you can get rid of the guy that lives in that cabin, I'm the bank. I'm like, are you serious? She's like, yeah. I'm like, I grew up in LA. Crazy people are my thing. Yeah. No problem. And I totally hit it off with a guy and I end up with this cabin, you know, <laughs> quarter mile away from the people that I really want to be with that other band yeah. I was in. I was like, you walk through the woods and you're at their house. Yeah. They start jamming and I can hear it in my cabin and go down there. And it was, it was amazing. But six years of that, no water, electricity, 40 miles from town, flies, right. ants, UFOs, whatever, crazy yeah. <laughs> wolves, bears, you know, it all went down up there. Um, so I was ready for New Mexico. I was ready for New Mexico to be over. And we came here and I got a computer and I made John this like 30, it was actually had 32, those ball end shoes on it, silver splendor rim. <coughs> He had found me these Oregon walnut rifle blanks at a, um, a junk store in Albany huh. and sent them to me. And I started making banjo necks out of gun blanks. And cool. Pretty much right when the Iraq war broke yeah. out. And Swords and I shares. got yeah. so many orders. It was just like the floodgates. Yeah. Um, rifle banjos. Presidents that I'm challenged by are good for banjo business, I've noticed. Interesting. Yeah, when people get stressed, <laughs> they buy banjos. Like, last last year was one of my best years ever. Oh, my God. I'm like, go figure. Oh, my God. It's good to know that someone's doing well. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, <laughs> I get back to New Mexico, and here's the, the long wrap-up of sure. John. Is he sent that banjo pretty much two weeks after I made it. I was the, it was the most amazing banjo I'd ever made. Yeah. Figured Oregon walnut, figured... Curly maple rim, silver spun, all hardware that I made and had, you know, uh, plated, whole deal. Made all the little square nuts in there just like Hammock did. And he sold it. He sent it to Bernunzio. And Bernunzio put it up on his website for $1,850. And I had just made it for $900. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, I'm totally don't really know who Bernanzio is, you yeah. know? And I actually call him up and I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. That's like, I made that for 900 bucks. And he's like, y you just wait. I'm like, okay. It sold the next day. Yeah. And that's where I called him up and I'm like, okay. He's like, anything you want, send it to me, you know? All right. So suddenly Bernanzio and I are really good friends and he's <laughs> pushing my business. Yeah. And then... um and then Roy Andrade called me one day and ordered a banjo, and then Travis Stewart ordered a banjo, and that was the eight to eight phone calls started coming in. Yeah, and that was that was it. I quit. I was fixing up a bar just to um, pay the bills here while I was trying to find my clientele. Yeah, you know? and that was twelve years ago. Right on. Uh, let's play this. Uh, okay. Let's play this rask on a rask, um, and then. I think I want to ask you some questions about advice for banjo players and things like that, like how to set up. Because just just before we uh, started, you were like like making some little um, recommendations for my bridge and things like that. There's so many like um, different kinds of people who play banjo. I am very focused on the music and sometimes to the detriment of like, I don't know how to, you know, just the same thing. It's like it, you know. I'll go to the mechanic before I like learn how to like fix my car. Right, you know? right. It's like so. Like, um, yeah, I have some questions about that. Okay, uh, but let's play this. Uh, Rats gone to rest. Mm -hmm. 
is fun. Two banjos. Two banjos. I never get tired of it. <laughs> I like it. It's funny how, how often there's like, um, you know, people like joke about it. I know there are people who are precious about like one banjo per jam, you know, like don't. Don't cross the streams. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, most people that I that I run into are like, yeah, more banjos. <laughs> yeah, like I told you, more our, our first band was was Tony. Tony played fiddle and harmonica at the same time, which was pretty unique. Hmm. And I uh, guess that's technically possible. Yeah, that's it, insane. It, the <laughs> no. thing that was insane was he never had any money, so his we had to tune to his harmonica because it was out. Oh my god, so that was hilarious. <laughs> He's like, you know, blowing on his harmonica and we tuned to it. But it was fiddle, two banjos, and harmonica, and yeah, it was it was so fun. Yeah, yeah, that was Matthew McElroy banjo. And harmonica. Oh my goodness! Yeah, Matthew and I would stay up all night and play together, two banjos. What are I? I guess here's a question: What what is your like? Do you have any pet peeves for like if you had like one thing that like people have on their banjos that it's just like. Just fix it with like this is the the one thing you need to do. Just make this little fix or things that like maybe people don't notice that you notice as a banjo maker. Um, I would say my biggest pet peeve is how timid people are about skinheads. Okay, you know, um, I'd say at this point, ninety nine point five percent of my customers will order a skinhead. Yeah. And that's basically my trip. The whole yeah. thing fits together better yeah. for my banjos. Because I use different size tension hoops than a lot of people. Yeah. So there's like size issues with synthetic heads for me. Yeah. Um, I feel like if you stretch a head right, it can be really stable. Yeah. Comparatively. You yes. Know? I mean, even, even Renaissance heads stretch. Right. So I have... And you're talking about people I like... I would, when I, f even now, I still, I'd find different people to bring my banjos to. Yeah. When I first started making them, I wasn't after compliments. I was after people that wouldn't like them. Interesting. You know, I'd yeah. bring them to my, you know, friends and they'd be like, Brooks, this is great. This is lovely. This right here, Brooks, this is ugly as sin. <laughs> you know, and like, what's up with this little thing right here? I was like, oh, that. The little Dremel slipped. You know, I did fill yeah. it with ebony. Dude, you can do better than that. <laughs> Stuff <great>. like that. <laughs> and then moving to Portland, all of a sudden I had a bunch of banjo players. And people are really polite in Portland, which I like. Sure. But it would drive me crazy because I'd give them my banjo and I'd watch them and I could tell that they were struggling with the action or whatever. Right, right, and they'd right. be like, oh, I love it. And I'm like, you do not. Yeah, you just... Knock it off. <laughs> you know, and I'd bring it to... My friend Curtis also broke, and he'd be like, dude, I can't play this thing. And he was a white lady player. I'm like, basically, my my banjo of choice is an old, beat up, yeah. you know, Buckaby. So we're, I find people from different yeah. spectrums. The white lady player, or a really melodic player, or my own self that just kind of has your own style. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's my main pet peeve is how... People don't want to deal with steel, with skinheads. I don't live in the South, right? But I have a friend who's a firefighter in Florida. Yeah, in Cocoa, Florida, it's one of the most humid places on the planet, and he brings his banjo to work every day. Huh. No air conditioning, and yeah. that thing sounds fantastic. Right. So I think my advice for people is let it be. <laughs> you yeah. know, if it's working, don't don't tweak it. 
Like I purposely don't send out banjo wrenches. Uh huh. When you I send out a banjo, people over tweak it. Yeah. Yeah. They just jump right into it, and they're like, "Oh, can you replay? I get broke a couple hooks." You know. It's yeah, like, yeah. So it's like I just stop sending out wrenches, and nobody's huh. breaking hooks, and I'm not here, and like my banjo's going out of tune. You know, uh, for a while there, that was happening. Um, and then through a mistake, you know, a lot of the great things in this world were made by accident. Yes. And I had a rush job for a guy where I had to stretch a head for him on a Goose Acres banjo. It was the first time I had a real Goose Acres. Um, but he was going up to Port Townsend and it was super, super wet up there. It's cold, humid, but it's 100% humidity. Yeah. And I said it, so his tension, he was way too high. And I was like, how am I going to stretch? I can't stretch yeah. any further. And I'm like, he's going to be here an hour. So I just like cranked it down, hit it with like, um, you know, a sponge, let it dampen, cranked it down and until it didn't want to go anymore. I'm just like waiting for it to pop. Yeah. He came and picked it up and I'm like, okay, John, have fun. I'll see you <laughs> like there. looking away from it. Yeah, I like, oh, no. <laughs> and I saw him up there at Port Towns and I'm like, how's it hanging in there? You know? And he pulls it out and he's like, oh, it's the best head I've ever had. You know? And he pulls it out and it's like, it's totally tight. Yeah. It is. It has not moved at all. Yeah. My banjo I'm playing is pretty useless because it just, the head had gone flat. And that's where I realized I'm like, I'm not stretching him enough. Interesting. So now I, I set the head. I said the tension hoop super high, like I only pull an eighth of an inch of it over the top of the rim, and then I have you know my driveway opens up to the where it's dumping down rain, yeah. and then we have gas heat, so the banjo goes in between, yeah, cold humid garage up into my room, multiple times until it's not moving anymore, yeah, and then I send them out. That's interesting. Like, uh, hadn't occurred to me like the like getting the banjo ready. Like, it makes sense doing that in Oregon. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> or anywhere. You know, I, I, I generally try to hold on to a banjo for at least a few weeks after it's finished. Yeah. So it's like it's a tricky thing for me where, you know, the bills come. Yeah. The bills always show up on the same date. Yeah. So a lot of times I'll get paid before the people get their banjo. Uh-huh. But I would notice that in the early days they would, they would sell like, like a month after I made it. So to me, I was like, there's something not right. And yeah. that's what it was. I was just sending them out too fast. Yeah. You know, the head needs to settle. The tuners, these, you know, there's compression in on this plastic or the wood. Yeah. So those little screws come loose, you know. Um, little things like that make a big difference in stability. And I felt like my first couple of years, I was just sending them out before they're really broken in. And um, so, yeah. Besides, yeah, that's it. Besides that, I'm pretty much, I, like I was telling you earlier, I'm not the kind of guy that goes to the festival wanting to play tunes with everybody. Yeah, I'm the guy that banjos. goes around and <laughs> listens to everybody's banjos. And like I, for years, I knew what banjos people owned before I knew them or their, even their names. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and it would freak them out when I met them. Like, so you got a, you got that tuba phone that Wyatt finally made, right? Yeah. And I'm like, what? <laughs> How do you know that? Because I'm a fly on the wall. Uh, some sort of banjo psychic. Uh, let's go to D, play a couple of D tunes. Okay. Yeah, so all this spraying stuff on your head, putting oil on it, I just don't buy it. Yeah. If you think about it, it's a porous material. Yeah. So if you spray a finish on a balloon, yeah. oil on a balloon, and blow it up more, 
that oil's gonna crack and explodes. Yeah. So I don't know. I feel like you, there's a way. That's me. It's my. That's my pet peeve. Mm-hmm. I think you can. African drums, hundreds yeah. of years. Goat skin heads. You don't see them. I mean, they actually wet them down a little bit sometimes, but. Yeah, but they're not like hemming and hawing about. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I gotta play a dance. I need a fiber skin head. It's like. Take your banjo out and just open the case yeah. an hour before the dance starts or whatever. Right. And not even that. Just it's not that much acclimating. You know, when I first when I first got my uh, hide head in the mail, I was just like super nervous about it um, because of the way people talk about it. You know, and uh, uh, now after talking to you, I'm wondering if I should like ease off a bit because I would literally like. Um, loosen it every time and I still do I, I like loosen it every time I go on a plane now let it be let it be and that's it's calf calf and goat are different this is a goat yeah yeah goat I mean feel this thing's tight yeah I have not touched much. this head in years awesome <laughs> good story very good uh, let's play Rockin' in the Weary Land this is a tune that I've only heard um, Adam Hurt play. I've never heard any anyone else play it, but uh, um, it's from uh, Galax, I think. It's like an old Galax tune. Okay, cool. I think so. My first banjo that I copied, the first E Hammond I had, was originally purchased from Tom Bar's music store in Galax. Very good. So the, the original one is the one that had the star overlay. Uh-huh. If anybody remembers it, because <laughs> hammocks were usually six strings, most of them. Huh. So a lot of people have changed them back to five strings. Hmm. And this one, they had just taken the peg out and put a little plastic star like you get in school and just glued it on there. So Tom would be like, yeah, it's got, it's got an overlay. <laughs> it's really funny. But yeah, Taylor Grover bought it off him. Overlay. Yeah. Oh my God. It's good. Thank you. 
Yeah. Men are duets. <laughs> I'm all about it. Let's take it on the road. Yeah. <laughs> huh. That is really a pretty banjo to listen to and to, Thanks. And to look at. Yeah. This is my son's. I gave it to him on his eighth birthday, and I made it to play with Earl White. Hmm. And I got invited to be in the Earl White string band I yeah. made. Each time I get in a band, I make another banjo for that Just specific for that band. band. Interesting. Yeah. What do you... I mean, that's awesome. I've never heard anyone doing that before. Like, what do you... Uh, do you change anything about the way that the banjo is? Like, to match the, the fiddling or something? Or, like... Or is it the makeup of the band? How, it's how just... Um, uh, I've always taken being in a band really seriously. So it's just kind of my intent. Like, I want to be in this, bad, this band enough that I'm going to actually make an instrument just for this band. Yeah. And this is what, you know... I'm so you're, like, buy-in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, the band in New Mexico, I think it's around here somewhere, but we all had to read um, Moby Dick to be in the band. You know, because it was all songs of ocean and love. Yeah. You know, but completely weird, crazy music. Yeah. But... You know what's funny is I think about my... You haven't been down to my shop yet. No, not yet. And that's... Uh, if anybody's read Moby Dick and there's the diagrams of the ship, you know, he's, he does all these drawings, in-depth drawings of how you get everything on the ship huh. for your two-year journey. Um, I haven't read Moby Dick. I, I could totally do that. I could write down where every single tool is because yeah. it's a, such a small little area. Yeah, <laughs> it's, okay, yeah it's just a little little garage down there. Yeah. There's more. It's it's about 600 square feet. Okay. So it's not totally small. Yeah. yeah. It works. It's cool. I'm in a basement a lot by myself, yeah. which is kind of like, it's <laughs> it's apropos that my name's Brooks. There's, there's two of me in here. You know, yeah. it's like, <laughs> how's it going this morning, Brooks? Fine. Why do you ask? <laughs> I've been down here weeks by myself. Yeah, there's the living room, Brooks. There's there's the yeah. kitchen. There's the kitchen making tacos, Brooks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's the basement, Brooks. Yeah, there's the basement, Brooks. <laughs> That's funny. I'll be basement basement Brooks someday. Uh, well, we got one more. Okay. Um, how do people get your banjos? What do you want people to do? Call to action time. Um, call to action. Yeah. <laughs> if you want a steady stream of what I'm up to, follow me on Instagram, mm. which I think is a great forum for all the new banjo makers yeah. in old. It's really great community. And which is weird to say, but it is. It's a community. I feel like I've got to know a bunch of banjo makers through Instagram. Yeah. And that's where I kind of that's where you can follow my life and what I'm working on. Yeah. And if you want to look at my website, it's brooksbanjos.com. Um, it's always a work in progress. My son, son does the website, so you know he's twenty. It's when I can dial him in. Yeah. Um, when he's not too busy, <laughs> he'll fix something because yeah. people always be like, "Hey, you're missing some pictures here. It's not working." I'm yeah. Like, it's coming. You know. <laughs> um, and we've been heavily inspired by Patrick Evener's new website yeah. and Aaron Kimes new website for setup. So. Um, we're going to be kind of copying both of those guys because <laughs> yeah. I'm impressed on how yeah. much easier it can make your life. I think my order form's pretty confusing. You know, you have to jump around the website to gotcha. see what you're actually ordering. Yeah. I think it's better just to be like, oh, this is what it is right yeah. here. So that's what we're working yeah. on. But that's it. Brooks Banjos on the internet and Brooks Mastin on Instagram. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much for all the stories. Oh, and the thanks music. for letting me blab.
perfect blabbing. Right. <laughs> just the just the right kind of blabbing. I can tell we're not in a band. Yeah. They'd be like, Brooks, I'm cutting you off. Yeah. Wait, I'm not done with my story yet. Yeah. <laughs> Babylon Brooks, that was yeah. my blog. There you go. <laughs> uh, come on, Gap. Okay, cool. Here it comes. on Instagram, make sure to follow Brooks Maston to see what he's working on. He's got a bunch of cool banjos started, and if you like what you see, you can email him at brooksbanjos at gmail.com. Ask him what's for sale. 
Or if you're looking for something custom-made, go to brooksbanjos.com and fill out an order form. Just chase those banjo dreams. Go get them. Make sure to check out this week's bonus track. Brooks and I play a version of Dry and Dusty that I have affectionately renamed Moist and Musty. Access to the weekly bonus track blog is one of the many rewards I offer to those who support Get Up in the Cool on Patreon. If you like the show and want me to keep making it, you can go to CameronDewitt.com, click the Patreon button, choose a support level that works for you. Other rewards span from on-air shoutouts to weekly MP3 subscriptions and online banjo workshops. Speaking of shoutouts, thanks to my newest Patreon supporters, Adam Silverman and Sarah Leginski, or maybe Leginski, I'm not sure. I should ask for uh, pronunciation guides. <laughs> uh, also, Misha Vikas, also not sure if that's how your name is pronounced. Um, Thank you so much for raising your pledge amount. That's awesome. You didn't have to do that. Uh, You're all great and make me want to keep making the show. Seriously, every bit of encouragement helps. I'm really, really busy and I'm running a bit low on episodes. Every time I get a notification from Patreon, I'm reminded that people really like the show and depend on me to make it. It really does mean a lot to me and it's really helpful to me. Thank you so much. I don't pay to advertise the show, so please tell everyone that it exists and that it's good, and share links to the show on all your favorite forums and Facebook groups. And uh, make sure to like and follow Get Up in the Cool's Facebook page and ask to join the Facebook group. That's all for now. Thanks for listening, friends. Come back same time next week to Get Up in the Cool.